Welcome to the Catholic Habit Podcast. I'm Josh Madden, and this is the second in a series of shows dedicated to G.K. Chesterton's well-known work, Orthodoxy. If this is your first time listening, be sure to subscribe and check out the catalog of shows we've done in the past. One easy way to do this is by going to the Theology and Reality website where this podcast is hosted. So if you're interested, go check that out at theologyandreality.substack.com. You can also find that link in the show notes. You can sign up to get emails, posts, and podcast episodes delivered right to your inbox. You can sign up with a free subscription to get a lot of what we put up there, though there are paid subscription options if you're interested in the whole plethora of things that get posted or if you just want to be able to support this work. Now, thanks so much for being here. Let's go. All right, so welcome back. Today we're going over chapter two entitled The Maniac. So last week we had gone over how the main idea, the big idea of chapter one was the twofold tension in the human need for the familiar and the unfamiliar, that spiritual desire for what is comfortable, what is home, and what is uncomfortable, what is outside of ourselves, what is beyond us. Today's critical idea for this particular chapter is twofold. They, uh, it's, it's essentially two critical ideas, but they're related to one another. They're essentially two sides of the same coin. The first is this idea that Chesterton puts forth that modernity is characterized in part by a descent into pure reason. Now, he goes over the fact that the ancients, when they examined the human, the human condition, they could begin with sin, but we no longer can because this is not something that is shared by all. And in fact, nowadays, even more so than when Chesterton wrote, is explicitly rejected or simply ignored by most. So what he says instead is that we must actually begin with sanity. We must begin with sanity instead. We moderns despise the imagination, believing truth to be held in reason and logic alone. And so there's an over-reliance on reason that's dangerous here. We begin to think that all must conform to our own way of thinking, that everything that is true must necessarily be logical to us. And so as he, as he goes through this in, in the chapter, he, he talks about how essentially when we try to cage in the universe, when we try to put everything in a little box, we happen to go mad, right? Because there's many things that are good or that make us happy that in a way have no logic about them. There's no logic underlying them in this particular way. Now, of course, you know, you can't just say that carte blanche, but in a sense, in Chesterton's sense, this is true, right? Take a number of things that human beings do to be happy or to take leisure that don't have a purely utilitarian purpose to them, right? Laying out in the sun in the summer, taking time off work to play with our children, indulging in a great feast, right? Most activities of leisure are about what makes us happy, not because there's a cold, hard, utilitarian logic behind them. There's a reason, in fact, that philosophy is useless, right? It, kind of, it sounds kind of strange, right? Philosophy is useless. A lot of us wouldn't want to say that. But the fact is that it's true. Aristotle talks about this because it's not for something. You don't use philosophy. You do philosophy. You enjoy philosophy. 
Philosophy is not for the sake of something else. So all genuine leisure activities are for the simple act of the thing itself, right? You don't play with your children and enjoy them because you're trying to do something, right? Because you're trying to use them for something, you're enjoying them. Now, the second critical idea that's related to this descent into pure reason, right? This descent into a cold, calculating logic of the modern mind is the folly of believing in oneself. Now, that sounds kind of strange, but again, this is the end point of this over-reliance on logic that we have come to believe purely in our own way of viewing the world. It's what is true is only what I see. What is true is only what I feel. What is true is only what I think. Right? So placing one's entire view in light of what only we can see or think is a kind of insanity. And there's an interesting parallel here. Chesterton doesn't bring it up in the chapter, but I'm sure he was aware. And I'm sure this is part of what informs his idea of this is that in the Gospels, in the Gospel of John, Christ actually speaks about this over-reliance on the self as actually demonic. In, in John 8, verse 44, for instance, he essentially defines what it is to be the devil, and the devil is the one who speaks out of his own, while it's Christ who speaks from the Father. Christ's whole identity is to be from another. Right? He is from the Father. That's uh, honestly, a good characterization of his person in the Gospel of John in summary, right? Who is Christ? Well, he's the one who is sent from the Father. He talks often in the Gospels about how he is not speaking from himself or witnessing to himself. It's the Father who witnesses to him. He is from the Father. He speaks from the Father. He acts in accordance with what he sees the Father doing. All right, so the best image or metaphor in the chapter, there's not something as striking as we had in the first chapter with the man in the boat, but there is something almost equally interesting here. And what Chesterton does talk about is he mentions this image of the asylum or the, the mental hospital, essentially. And it's in part to go over what he, he has this quotation where he talks about how oddities only strike normal people, right? So when there are strange things, it's only normal people who happen to notice them, right? People who are already odd or crooked aren't the ones who are going to notice something else that is odd or crooked. The only way to measure a crooked line, for instance, is by having reference to a straight one. The only way to recognize the strange or fantastic or mystic is by being normal. Human beings are strange creatures. We are both material and spiritual. All right? We hang in the balance between heaven and earth. So the best way to live as a human being is to always hold both of these together. So the material, the logical, the rational is what is truly obvious to us, but the spiritual is not. There's a, there's a, we, you can't touch or sense or test the spiritual, the immaterial. So what Chesterton is doing here is he's essentially trying to remind us that to be wholly obsessed with one to the exclusion of the other is a mistake. We can't dismiss either one. And when we do, things go off the rails. In some cases, this becomes a battle between rationalism and fideism. So when we are purely focused on the logical, the rational, the material, we can fall into a kind of rationalism where we have to prove everything. Everything has to be seen or tested or understood 
in a materialistic way. On the other side of the coin, there's a kind of fideism we could fall into as well if we go the opposite direction and we want to dismiss what is logical or material or rational right? and only go with what we think or feel or believe to the exclusion of reason. Christianity, of course, weds these two together. Now, the best quote is interesting. So it's a longer one that I've chosen today. And so here it is. He says, this is why the new novels die so quickly and why the old fairy tales endure forever. The old fairy tale makes the hero a normal human boy. It is his adventures that are startling. They startle him because he is normal. But in the modern psychological novel, the hero is abnormal. The center is not central. Hence, the fiercest adventures fail to affect him adequately and the book is monotonous. You can make a story out of a hero among dragons, but not of a dragon among dragons. The fairy tale discusses what a sane man will do in a mad world. The sober realistic novel of today discusses what an essential lunatic will do in a dull world. And so, to be honest, there's not much to add beyond that. It's, it's so very clear. It's, it essentially should make us ask questions about the kinds of stories that are popular nowadays or that we're consuming. And, and, and related to last week's big idea, the best stories are those which portray the world as large and mysterious and a place that needs to be conquered, right? a, a place that needs to be gone into and explored. Children especially need this, right? They need to be assured that they're perfectly normal and good, and yet they're capable of fantastic things. And this is what good stories do. And so the diagnosis right, of what has changed in a lot of the stories that we tell, whether it's in books or movies or television, I think anyone would be able to see that there's a, a pretty stark difference between most of what gets created today in the 21st century and what people were creating and enjoying and accepting 40, 50, 60, 70 years ago. There's a lot, there's a lot of things that are different, of course, but, but this is one of them, right? This idea that it's not, it's not the, the, the magical that needs to be made mundane. It's the opposite. And the most Chesterton quote, right, the one that is um, paradoxical in a sense where you kind of have to ask, well, how much sense does this make? There's, there's an interesting one um, when he's talking about what it means to be ordinary. And he says, the ordinary man has always been sane because the ordinary man has always been a mystic. And so that's one of those things that is, it's true and untrue. On the one hand, of course, most of us would not think of ourselves as mystics, right? That's not how we would approach the world explicitly, consciously. If someone asked if that's what we were, we, we probably would deny it and say no. But at the same time, he's getting at a more fundamental and deeper truth about the way that human beings are meant to interact with the world. And the fact that in the past, the ordinary person has believed in the wonderful, has had faith. Right? They haven't had it beaten out of them the way so many have today. Now, of course, right, that raises a question, right? how do we become this kind of ordinary mystic? And we went over a, a little bit of this last week. But the idea, of course, there is, as we said with chapter one, that there's a kind of re-enchantment that needs to happen. So how do we do this, right? That's going to be different for everyone. But how do we meditate on 
this this particular week, or how does this relate itself to the Lenten season that we are in the middle of? And I think it goes back a little bit to what we had mentioned five, 10 minutes ago about what it means to be from our own or from another. So how can we attempt to purify ourselves from the desire to speak and to act out of our own and rather speak and act in a way that is from God? For Chesterton here, the idea is that becoming closed in on oneself leads to a kind of insanity. So here what he's doing in this chapter, the, the main concern is an intellectual one primarily. But of course, there's a moral dimension to this as well. Moral errors often begin from a too narrow focus on our own desires. Sometimes even good desires that then become rotten in some way. Um, there's a lot of things that we would want to condemn or reject that are bad or immoral or unethical behaviors in themselves, but begin from a good or, or wholesome desire. I think in, in the news recently, there's a lot of, I mean, there's always kind of bioethical things in the news nowadays with various scientific advances in that kind of thing. But in vitro fertilization, for instance, has been in the news cycle for a while. And this is one of those things, the desire for children when one is dealing with infertility or the inability to have children naturally, that's a good desire. It's a good desire to want children. But then, as we know, right, the ends don't justify the means. And so something like in vitro fertilization that creates new life outside the natural bond of husband and wife, and, you know, at least at least now also involves the creation and destruction of many more embryos than actually are brought to term, right? All of that is something we would want to reject as unethical, as immoral, right? as unnatural, but it begins in a good desire. There's a lot of actions that are like this, but of course we have to remember right? the, the ends don't justify the means, of course. And for us now during Lent, right, this kind of reminder, right, this reminder to not to be out of our own, it can serve as a reminder that the desire to be empty of, uh, emptied of what is our own is a kind of imitation of Christ. We become sanctified and deified by becoming like him. And so we must also pray for the grace to be from the Father like Christ is. Christ receives all from the Father. The Spirit receives all he is from Father and Son. And so the Christian life is to embrace and pray for the grace to receive all that we are from the saving work of God. So that's something I think this week, especially, especially after Sunday's reading about the transfiguration, again, this Trinitarian witness to Christ's identity, our identity in Christ also needs to be from the Father. Thanks so much for listening. If you enjoyed today's episode, please consider leaving us a rating and review wherever you get your podcasts to help spread this channel far and wide. If you've benefited from this podcast or anything else that we do over at Theology and Reality, consider donating to keep this venture going and to help us keep finding new ways to evangelize, teach, 
and spread the joy of Christianity, the true philosophy. Join us again next week for the next episode in our series, and God bless you.